Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. Welcome to All Together Now, Fridays with the Moth. I'm your host for this week, Jody Powell. Over the past few months, I've been refreshing my news pages, looking for anything to ease the heavy state of my mind. I have really low moments, but once in a while, I find people who have really difficult journeys who remind us that there might be a tiny light somewhere. And as a black woman in America, those little reminders are so very necessary. Personally, I turn to the artists around me for these glimpses of hope. Yes, the news pages give snapshot, but it is the artists and their work and words that give me means of how to think about coping. Today, we will hear from Anthony Brinkley, who is a very beloved poet from Tulsa, Oklahoma. This was one of the first stories I directed at The Moth. I am too a poet, so I felt an especially tight kinship with Anthony. And I'm always curious to see life through the lens of people of letters. I remember watching him tell this as I stood at the side of the stage. I was so nervous and it was so silent you could hear a pin drop. Here's Anthony Brinkley, live at The Moth. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, embracing a loving environment that fortunately for me was all black. See, back then, we still had the mindset that created what became known as the Black Wall Street before it was destroyed by an angry white mob and the schools, the local stores, the movie theaters, all were run and patronized by black people. And because of that community feeling, my neighborhood truly was a village. If you did something wrong around the corner, Mrs. Johnson would make sure the news reached home before you did. And if Mr. Holmes down the street told you to do something, you just said, yes, sir, and did it. My parents divorced when I was young and I rarely saw my father afterwards, but I was blessed to have my grandfather. Robert Ross, a tall, lean-muscled man with a strong sense of right and wrong and a strict, yet gentle, guiding hand. My granddaddy liked to drop little nuggets of wisdom that didn't really sink in until I got older, like, you can pick your friends, but your family, you're just stuck with them. <laughs> and though whippings weren't off the table for him, he tended more to lecture when you did something wrong. He set me down in front of him, pushed that ball cap back, and my eyes would focus on those Paul Mall cigarettes in the front pocket of his overalls that he liked to wear. Then he began in that slow, sonorous voice, killing me softly. Son, why you want to do your mother like this when you know you're wrong? His words eventually bring in tears of shame to my eyes. When I was about 12 years old, my grandfather and I were coming from the white part of town where he worked as a night janitor. 
We'd made it to our part of town when the cops pulled us over. And I became anxious when they made him get out of the truck because he wasn't speeding or anything. I couldn't hear what was said at first, but when things got loud, I opened the door and got out to hear them screaming at my grandfather that he better answer them with, sir. And when he didn't, and I guess because of the defiance in his stance, they started hitting him with their sticks and didn't stop when he went down. I can still hear the sound of those clubs striking his flesh, his muffled, <clears throat> as he refused to cry out. I stood there watching helplessly as they kept hitting him and hitting him and hitting him and hitting him with tears in my eyes praying, please God, please make them stop. They finally did leaving him battered, bruised, but alive. I prayed as I ran to him, please God, don't let him kill my granddaddy. I touched his steel body, relieved to hear him moan, then watched angrily as the cops sauntered back to their cars like it was no big deal. And one of them before getting in turned and blew me a kiss. I will never, Forget that smirk on his face. It was the mid-1960s, and that day, the first of many days where I witnessed or heard about white cops abusing their power in our neighborhood, my ambivalence toward white people morphed into a near hatred because you tend to hate what you fear. And later when I began reading Malcolm X and read him telling us to not cower in fear, but to fight back. He became sort of my compass. And my motto was, I ain't gonna start nothing, but I will end it if you put your hands on me. After high school, I joined the Air Force to see the world and also because the GI Bill would help pay for college. My first assignment after training was working on fighter aircraft at Osan Air Force Base in South Korea. Man, I love being in Korea. Absorbing bits of a completely foreign way of life, how the people in the countryside were so warm and welcoming to what was probably for them the first black person they'd ever seen in real life. But I was culture shock on the base, being thrust into an environment where for the first time I was surrounded by white people. That was sort of a, what the hell have I done moment? Because I was plunked into this fishbowl where everywhere I went, everything I said or did, I stood out. I was the black guy. And I, I can't say what my coworkers were thinking, but it felt like to me like this was a test to see if a black guy could really handle complex technical jobs. And it wasn't helped at all by the fact that I had to deal with Staff Sergeant Toplonsky, who was stocky, stern, blue eyes icy with disdain, openly regarding me with a sneer and folded arms, determined to leave no doubt that my race was a no-go for him. 
And when we had an opposing analysis about a problem with our systems and mine turned out to be the correct one, it did not endear me to him. Now, our shop commander, Tech Sergeant Denny, seemed aware of Jablonski's biases and made sure that he was never paired with me for on-the-job training. <laughs> and Tech Sergeant Denny was this, was this older white guy who loved to laugh and crack jokes all the time. And in retrospect, I think he kind of looked out for me. But though he loved to laugh and crack jokes, he was also a stickler for the rules. And his first one was do your job. And I had no problems doing the actual job. It was just we came from different cultures, my, my coworkers and I. I mean, they had never heard of Curtis Mayfield. And I didn't know who the hell Uriah Heap was. <laughs> but the fact that we tried to make this connection allowed me to relax a little and even developed a bit of camaraderie with, with some of them. One day, a group of us decided to take a hike into the countryside to spend the night outdoors. So we were shooting the breeze, discussing the meaning of life, when suddenly these hauntingly lyrical notes drifted up to us. And we all froze as we saw this procession of candlelights revealing men with shaved heads and long robes looking like monks carrying these candles as they wound towards us and past us. It was almost like this surreal, beautiful movie unfolding before us. And it seemed we all held our collective breaths as this sound played on an instrument we couldn't see repeatedly washed over us. Then they disappeared, and we all breathed out, wow. I reflected on that moment the next day. I mean, there we were, two black guys and four white guys on a hilltop in Korea, experiencing a moment akin to Malcolm's revelation in Mecca, where he found himself spiritually joined with black and white and brown people on a religious high. That moment reinforced that we were all black and white Americans sharing the same gift. Later, almost a year into my tour and career, it was my turn to be on standby on the base, just in case there was an unforeseen problem with our systems. It wasn't supposed to be my turn, but the guy in front of me was sick, so the task fell to me. Problem was, I'd already had a date planned for that night. So after pacing and fretting for a bit, the young and dumb in me reasoned that going downtown would be no big deal because nothing ever happens at night, right? Early the next morning, I was confronted with the error of my ways. Rafe Pride, the other black guy in electronics, banged on the door while I was staying downtown and told me that a base alert had been sounded while I was supposed to be on standby. Have you ever had that dream where you fell over a cliff or off a bridge and you were just falling and falling and falling and you, then you woke up just before you hit? Well, I was already wide awake. And it hit home that that common mil military expression applied, and I was in deep doo-doo. 
Ray shook his head as he drove me to the base. Man, I don't know what you can tell them, but you better find something. And I can't remember what I was going to say to my shop commander, but when I got there and saw, of all people, Jablonski deliberately planted on my path to the office, all thoughts of humble pie were burned away and effed these people. It was the only thoughts in my head. See. Though I knew I was wrong and deserved punishment, that Jablonski smirk, that cop smirk, ignited something inside me that made me determine that I would not cower and I didn't give a damn. So I marched into Sergeant Denny's office and stood at angry attention. Sergeant Denny sat behind his desk with his back to me, facing the wall, then slowly turned around, giving me with a wave of his hand an at-ease signal. But when he saw the anger radiating from me, he sat back and observed me for a bit. Then it seemed like a transition occurred within him. And I like to think that the spirit of my grandfather entered the room because instead of ringing me out for desertion, he began speaking in a familiar tone. Brinkley, why are you standing in my office giving me an attitude when you know you're wrong? His words triggered memories that superimposed my grandfather's big hands on the his and making me think about how the one man I knew loved me would so be so disappointed in my actions. Sergeant Denny said a lot of other things, but it was his grandfather-like demeanor that completely disarmed me and brought tears to my eyes as he spoke on and on and my shoulders slumped in guilt. He ended up giving me a punishment far below that which my desertion warranted, which when word got out, really pissed Jablonski off. <laughs> I mean, you probably could have fried an egg on his bald ass head. But I was so shocked that an older white guy would give me that kind of break that I didn't even react to Jablonski. That moment with Sergeant Denny added glue to my budding resolve to just let people's actions show me how they, who they are. And I left Korea dramatically different from the guy about whom my sister would say, my brother won't even wear white t-shirts. I have since experienced racial slights and liberal bastions like Massachusetts and California. I've known openness and acceptance and the breath-squeezing bear hug from a gruff-looking red-headed biker in Texas who fixed my car and just said, this one's on me, buddy. Which reminds me of another of my granddaddy's golden nuggets that only shone after I'd added mileage to my lifeline when he said, son, some books look a whole lot different when you open them up and turn the pages. Read before you judge. Thank you. Anthony Brinkley has been referred to as the godfather of Tulsa poetry. Since retiring in 2013, he has joined the 100 Black Men of Tulsa an organization focused on mentoring primarily boys of color in local public schools. Anthony says they want to show these students that there are black men in their community who care for them and to help them navigate what he calls the minefield of manhood. 
Working with Anthony on this story was seamless, but the process of building his story was difficult. It is never easy to paint a picture that has hurt in it. I wrestled with this story because it doesn't give easy answers. This story was particularly complicated for me because this fishbowl that Anthony speaks of, I know it. I came to the US from Jamaica at 19 to go to college, and I remember finding very few people to relate to. I was in a very white environment, and I looked and of course sounded different from everyone else, which is a very lonely feeling. Every time I think of it, I clench up. So this forgiveness that is present in Anthony's story is sometimes hard for me to relate to. Anthony has really given humanity the benefit of the doubt, a benefit sometimes I question if humanity deserves. He has given us another lens, his lens to process a brutal and very unforgiving history, a history that keeps throwing punches to this day. My grandfather always says, you kill them with kindness, and kindness is not always lethal, but it does have its place. Anthony lives just north of the Greenwood area of Tulsa, also known as Black Wall Street. It is a part of the city that is still feeling the repercussions of the Tulsa massacre of 1921, when white Tulsan turned on their black neighbors, leaving 35 blocks of destroyed black businesses and hundreds dead. I spoke to Anthony about what it's like living in what used to be one of the most prized areas for black people in America. Here's Anthony. Sometimes I, I, I think about what it would have been like if the the massacre hadn't happened, if the if Wall Street had not been destroyed, if that yes I can attitude that that characterized the residents had been allowed to flourish and and announce to the world the brilliance of Black Wall Street and consequently the brilliance of uh, Black people that we can do and and that can do attitude had been allowed to spread throughout the country, how much better our country would be. What happened at Black Wall Street happened over and over in different places from St. Louis to New York to Florida, where whenever Black communities started thriving a little bit, white anger, for whatever reason, descended upon and destroyed it. And so I think it I think it triggered a sort of learned helplessness in the mindset of far too many black people. Like it, it ain't gonna make any difference what we do. White people are not gonna let us succeed. Next year will mark 100 years since the destruction of Greenwood's Black Wall Street. And as a local, very respected poet, Anthony was invited to share an original poem. It's called Greenwood Imagine If. I tell them to close their eyes and imagine what if minds and ideas and entrepreneurial spirits had never been subjected to the searing hatred that left Black Wall Street in ashes? What if its citizens had enjoyed free reign to flourish into the future and Black Tulsa never lost the yes I can mindset. Imagine Gurley Inn and Suites anchored on Greenwood with hotels and offices spread across America. Imagine Langston University on the land now gobbled up by Oklahoma State University being a beacon for the best minds in the country 
where Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson met as undergraduates. Imagine a line of cars birthed in the minds of two young black women born in the Greenwood district and now driven in different countries all over the world. Imagine, if you will, that black Tulsans still expected to succeed. That was Anthony Brinkley. Hearing stories can often complicate our own perspectives, like Anthony's did for me. The process of unpacking our held beliefs can be daunting, but it's critical to keep these conversations going, no matter how difficult. Here are some prompts to help you get started. When was a time when someone you barely knew reminded you of family? How about a time when you received grace from somewhere unexpected? How have you been finding comfort during these times? What or who are you turning to for support and wisdom? You can also find these prompts in the extra section on our website, themoth.org. Until next time, from all of us here at The Moth, have a story-worthy week and one love. Jody Powell is a producer on The Moth's main stage and Story Slam teams. Jody also directs and teaches in The Moth's community and education programs. The spark that ignites her is the moment when a storyteller is center stage and you can feel the audience listening. Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth podcast is presented by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.